The row over Stephen Fry's comments about God, actually made over a year ago, is seen by secularists as further evidence that Ireland needs to throw off its theocratic past. But in the rather predictable commentary on the affair, has it perhaps been lost that drawing some kind of line against gratuitous abuse of religious views is perhaps no harm at all, and in our increasingly coarse public discourse, might be a good thing? What is blasphemy? And is there any hypocrisy by secularists who demand freedom of expression to attack religion, but then engage in no platforming of individuals who don't comply with modern identity politics dogma? To talk about blasphemy this morning, Owen O'Dell is an Associate Professor of Law in Trinity College, Dublin. Joe Humphreys is Assistant News Editor at the Irish Times and author of its philosophy column, Unthinkable, which is excellent. And Ginny Kinnerly is a Church of Ireland canon and editor of Search, the Church of Ireland journal. Um, Ginny Kinnerly, I want to start off maybe by just repeating exactly what it was Stephen Fry said, and then you can tell us from a religious perspective if it actually was blasphemous, irrespective of what the law is. So he he went on a little bit, but I think it's important to put it in the full context. He was asked what he would say to God on arrival at the pearly gates. And he replied, I'll say, bone cancer in children. What's that about? How dare you? How dare you create a world in which there is such misery that is not our fault? It's not right. It's utterly, utterly evil. Why should I respect a capricious, mean-minded, stupid God who creates a world which is so full of injustice and pain? That's what I'd say. Now, if I died and it was Pluto, Hades, and if it was the 12 Greek gods, then I would have more truck with it because the Greeks didn't pretend not to be human in their appetites and in their capriciousness and in their unreasonableness. They didn't present themselves as being all-seeing, all-wise, all-kind, all-beneficent because the God who created this universe, if it was created by God, is quite clearly a maniac, utter maniac and totally selfish. Now, I've been told that this constitutes theodicy. Can you tell me <laughs> what does that mean? And do you think it's it's veering towards blasphemy? I, Sarah, I wouldn't say it is the Odyssey, but it raises the question of the Odyssey, which is about how do we how can we reconcile God's powerfulness uh, with his goodness? And it's an ancient question. It goes back to the early church, um, with people saying, either God is all powerful and unjust or unkind, or he is good, but not all-powerful, which is why a number of us in the church today still have trouble addressing God as almighty God, because if he is almighty, um, he certainly has chosen not to be. And in giving human beings free will, um, he certainly has abdicated his all-powerfulness. Otherwise, we couldn't choose whether to get up in the morning or not, or, or whether to be kind or cruel, so on and so forth. So it's a very basic problem. And while what Stephen Fry said was a bit shocking, I still recognized it immediately as the cry of horror um, of somebody who maybe would like to believe in a good God, but was completely unable to do so, given the suffering in the world. And it goes all the way from Boethius in the second century or something, down to someone like Harold Kushner writing that very good book, um, when bad things happen to good people. So it's it's a basic uh, problem for Christian faith, and I think we should take a lot more account of it. Um, we should think about it. We should, Clergy should be encouraged to preach about it, to teach about it, it's to foster basic, conversation about it's it. It's the basic question children often ask, you know, um, how can there be even in the world? So 
taking into account his tone, do you think it was offensive? And do you think, you know, from a theological perspective, would it count as blasphemy? I wouldn't call it blasphemous. I would call it a cry of pain. Right. Okay. Uh, But talking about blasphemy, I mean, blasphemy is insulting God um, in in a very crude way, I I would say. I do think blasphemy legislation is uh, problematic, uh, particularly in a pluralist society. Do we have to allow for all possible religious views? Um, uh, We have a large number of Muslims. They're very aware of the blasphemy problem. Um, Do we also legislate for uh, blasphemy against Scientologists' idea of God, so on and so forth. I just don't think it's a runner in a modern state in a pluralistic world. Okay, so on Odell, um, will you give us a bit of a history of the blasphemy law as it stands? How have we ended up with this law on the statute books? The starting point is the 1937 Constitution, which tells us that blasphemy, quote, shall be an offence punishable by law. And in 1999, the Supreme Court told us that there was no... Uh, common law or legislation telling us what the word blasphemy meant in that provision. And so when the Defamation Act was going through the Oireachtas, the then Minister for Justice, uh, Dermot O'Hearn, decided that the Supreme Court had said there's a gap that needs to be filled and the Defamation Act would be the means by which it would be filled. And Section 36 of the Defamation Act 2009 provides for the crime of blasphemy, uh, which was being uh, bruited about in the context of uh, Stephen Fry's comments last week. So, and what, how did he define blasphemy in that 2009 Act? There are three, there are three very important things. The, the first thing is the definition, that it's grossly abusive and insulting in relators to matters held sacred by religion. So it's not just insulting God, it's insulting mm. anything that is uh, relating to a matter held sacred by a religion. And it says any religion. Any religion, mm. uh, causing outrage amongst a substantial number and intending to cause such outrage. So mm. it's, it's quite a narrow definition of, well, broad in the sense that it's uh, grossly abusive for any re- religion, but narrow in respect of uh, a substantial number must be, must be offended and you must have intended to do it. So that's the first thing. That's the definition. The second thing is that there is a a defense of, if you like, a public interest, that if there are good reasons for your saying what you're saying, for the sorts of um, uh, literary, artistic, political, scientific or academic reasons, um, then that would provide a defense. And then thirdly, and picking up Jenny's last point, uh, there's a specific exception in respect of cults. Religions do not include cults. They do not include any organisation or cult, the principal object of which is the making of a profit. Now, there is a nice argument as to whether every religion has a principal object of making a profit, but I think the word there is principal. The key here is that uh, um, uh, mainstream religions get the protection, cults don't. Now, um, up until 2009... Okay, so when it was just in the Constitution, but this definition wasn't available. And actually, there's there's great accounts of Charlie Hawley was a minister for justice in 1961 when they were trying to grapple with this. And Patrick McGilligan, who was a constitutional lawyer, was demanding that a definition be put in. And Hawley was saying, well, everybody knows what blasphemy is. We don't need to put in a definition. And McGilligan said, I should like to see that put into the definition section. Blasphemy is what everybody knows it to be. Um, (laughs) Or blasphemy is whatever deputy Hawley knows it to be, which might be even more interesting. So was anyone ever actually prosecuted for blasphemy 
from the lifetime of the 1937 Not since 1937. The, the last prosecution in Ireland was in 1822. Now, blasphemy well predates the 1937 constitution. The, the, the first prosecutions of a modern blasphemy crime are in about the 1600s. And at that stage, you're talking about an established religion where an offence against the state and an offence against, against the religion were the same thing. Yeah, so just tease that out a bit, what an established religion is, because that appears to be very important. Well, an established religion is yeah. a religion that the state recognises as the state religion. Yeah. Um, and the, I mean, one of the big things that Daniel O'Connell fought against was the Church of Ireland as the established religion for Ireland, for example. And the disestablishment of the Church of Ireland and Catholic emancipation were all bound up as part of the campaigns that he ran from the 1820s to the 1840s. Um, And for so long as the state and the religion were effectively one recognising the other, then uh, a crime against the state and a crime against religion were the same thing. And that's why blasphemy, sedition and indecency, which is what the actual provision in the Constitution uh, refers to, they're all bound up together and they all go back to this notion of the, the state and the church as being the same thing. Um, and so uh, if, you, if, uh, if, you were, if you expressed uh, opinions contrary to the interests of the established church, that could be blasphemous, but that, that would also be against the interests of the state. Um, and so our blasphemy rules, if you like, go back to this notion of, of uh, keeping, keeping the public peace, keeping public order. Um, and the last prosecution uh, under that understanding of blasphemy was in 1822. Now, the, one of the reasons why the Supreme Court in 1999 said we don't know what blasphemy means is because once the church, gets disest- once the church is disestablished as, a, as an established church, uh, it isn't clear which religions, if any, are protected by the definition of blasphemy, and that's effectively what uh, Mr. Justice Barrington said in 1999, and what the uh, decision in uh, what the Section 36 is supposed to do is to, uh, if you like, define it as those churches that are um, recognised religions. And and just on that, what is the position specifically of the Catholic Church um, in, in within the Constitution? Can it be construed as an established religion? No, the uh, the the. Uh, this was one of the big things when de Valera was drafting the constitution. He wanted the the, the church to uh, give its benediction to it and um, the uh the, the Archbishop neither approved nor disapproved of it because the Church, the Catholic Church, wasn't established in the Constitution. It merely got a special position and the special position of the Catholic Church was removed by the Fifth Amendment in the early 70s. And then finally, and I'll come to Joe then, why didn't we just have a referendum and get rid of it then? Because, you know, if you had all these people, the Law Reform Commission, I think as far back as 1991, was saying, look, this just doesn't make any legal sense. Mm-hmm. No one, it's it's unenforceable. It's, you there, know. Are, there are three big reports within 10 years, the Law Reform Commission twice, the uh, Constitution Review Group and the Defamation Review Group, of which I was a member, all said, uh, take it out of the Constitution, don't have anything. So why didn't respect. we? Well, you, you have to ask the politicians that. Um, uh, Dermot O'Hearn on another radio station last week said something to the effect that uh, they didn't have the money for a referendum at the time. OK, all right. Well, yeah, 2009, in fairness, we were in the teeth of the bad days. There, I should probably, say that yeah. um, the Constitutional Convention three years ago recommended as one of its eight recommendations of constitutional reform that this be removed. And the, 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 the Taoiseach, uh, who is the same Taoiseach as the previous government, said not in the lifetime of this government. Right. I think, though, Sarah, you could Joe advance Humphreys. a fairly solid argument as to why they didn't hold a referendum. One is, is the cost and, the, and the, they don't like holding referendum because they can be complicated. But two, it was at a time when you had a lot of attacks on newspaper outlets 
Arabs who had published cartoons of Muhammad and there was all that controversy going on. It is a hassle the state doesn't want to bring on itself having what would be seen as irresponsible publishers publishing things that are offensive. It was also at a time when the interfaith dialogue was going on between uh, the Percy Hearn had set up between the churches in Ireland and some sections of the churches were looking for the retention of that blasphemy and looking for retention of some protection of of religions from uh, people causing offence to them. I mean, I think going back to the, you could look at this as very comical. I think Owen has explained it very well. I mean, we're not talking about blasphemy here. I mean, how do you, the, the legislature for blasphemy is not just problematic, it's unjustified. It's, it's impossible because how do you establish God is offended in the first place? And you could look at this as, as comically, you know, is he offended by Stephen Fry and that he's bigger now than God? He's got so many followers. That's what's causing offence. But actually, the really serious thing is blasphemy laws are being used internationally to persecute people, particularly Christians in other parts of the world. And for Christians in Ireland to kind of defend a blasphemy law here is totally counterproductive to that. But I, I think go back to, to, to basics here in terms of the, the theory behind this. And um, I mean, it's perfectly reasonable for someone to believe in God, but it's not reasonable to expect other people to believe in God. Mm. It's not reasonable. For, to, it's even more unreasonable to expect them to share your particular faith. Mm. Now, starting from there, and that's accepted by all the mainstream religions, accepted by the Catholic Church in Vatican II. Um, starting from there, is there a particular reason why speech around religion should be policed in, in a different fashion? And the, the main argument that's advanced is that it somehow causes harm to people. So people recoil when offence occurs, when, you, when a, a Muslim sees images of Prophet Muhammad, it can affect them in a kind of almost like an assault. And I, I would question that, uh, that notion of harm, I mean, on two, two ways. One is that it's very different to other harm. If you're hit or if you're stabbed, you're bleeding, it's a fact you've been harmed. To be harmed by blasphemy, you need an agitator. You need somebody, a theologian, to tell you you've, you've been offended. This is offensive. God has been offended. You are, the religious duty is to take offence here. So that's one major difference. Um, the other is, if you look at the harm, the evidence would suggest it's conditioned harm. So it's not, it's not as I say, the harm of an assault. You, people are conditioned to take that offence, to, to feel suffering, to feel the pain, to feel the hurt. And the evidence of that is the way uh, religious dialogue, religious discussions have evolved in the Western world. Things that were blasphemous 100 years ago, things that people would have recoiled from, would have felt was an assault in their person, are now everyday things. And so we've been conditioned to see them as not harmful. You know, they may, they may, we may not like them, but we don't, we don't feel them like a harm the way an assault. Now, you, you couldn't condition someone to say, oh, you're not feeling that assault. You know, that harm that you're feeling, the blood pouring out of your body, that, that's only, you know, in your mind. But we have conditioned people to, to think that uh, blasphemy is not a harm. So I, it would suggest the kind of harm that is being promoted here uh, is not a real harm. And, and I mean, I, I go for... I go for right, uh, but how... Say, would that compare to if you make racist comments, homophobic comments, something about travellers? Couldn't you say the same thing? Well, look, you know, I don't have to share your view on the world, so it's not really harm. Get over it. But we don't say that. Well, the difference there is in terms of hate speak, and I know Owen is is expert on this, and uh, incitement to violence. I mean, you are perpetrating a a, a crime, a recognisable crime in terms of intimidation, in terms of threats. Mm -hmm. So it's the difference between Stephen Fry doing an interview on RT, which you may or may not want to tune into and, and engage with his arguments, and Stephen Fry turning up in your house with a, hail, a loud hailer in the middle of the night, uh, threatening you and saying, I know where you live, you damn Christians, or something like of that effect. So that, that's the difference between hate speak and 
effectively free speech. Okay, but what say if he was on RTE and he Mm. was making comments about... Now, we can go with different parallels on this. We could probably use the whole programme with uh, examples. We can find out if they're fair or not. If he had said something about um, travellers or Romanians, um, you know, and, you know, oh, they're mean, they're capricious, something like that. That you wouldn't know, matter. That Owen? wouldn't matter. Um, the, the, the legislation is the Prohibition of Incitement to Hatred Act. And it's not enough that you say something horrible about somebody. Yeah. Um, you must say something horrible intending to incite others to react as a consequence. So it's not enough that Stephen Fry says, um, I hate God. He must intend by that that other people who also hate God react against uh, people of religion. Um, and I mean, for example, one, one of the interesting uh, attempted prosecutions in respect to prohibition um, of incitement to hatred uh, involves somebody on a bus who uh, starts a tirade against a Nigerian woman getting on the bus. And you think that's a terrible thing, that and it is, but everybody on the bus reacted against the inciter, not mm-hmm. against not against the woman that, that he was um, running the tirade against. In other words, nothing that he said actually incited any hatred against her. So you must actually have not merely the, the, the horrible speech, but also the consequences, the physical consequences, the hatred and the incitement reacting to it. Think, right. And if you don't have that, then you don't have an incitement to hatred. Really? The other, yeah, yeah. the other thing to remember is there is a press council, there's a broadcasting authority that regulates uh, you know, inappropriate uh, interviews, it, it, you know, racist commentary online and, and broadcasters and so on will get penalised for that. So you already have a layer of regulation there. You don't need another uh, piece of law that's there. I mean, if, if you do broaden it out, though, to, to a sort of offensive discussion, I mean, I, I do think there needs to be a broader recognition. And this is where maybe the, the liberals, for want of a better word, mightn't, shouldn't be too smug about looking at uh, religious people who get offended because, you know, people get offended over all sorts of things. And there is a, cl- a clampdown on speech that can offend, as you say, particular uh, norms, you know, particular uh, ideas around gender, for instance, even abortion. People say, I'm offended a man is talking about abortion. Well, you know, a man isn't perfectly entitled to talk about abortion and abortion rights. You know, uh, and in a similar way, I mean, no one has a right to be protected from having their feelings hurt. And that's, I think, a point that we've lost along the, the way in terms of talking about uh, tolerance and respect and so on, which are very important things. Um, having your feelings hurt actually is quite a positive thing at times, but especially when it's challenging your, you know, uh, unchallenged assumptions that you have. So, I mean, one thing about Stephen Fry is is he, he is making it hard work for religious believers. He, he, the, the hurt that some people feel, that's the pain of having to do the effort of justifying your beliefs. So you're, you're working it out in your head, well, how do I reconcile what he's saying, my beliefs? And that is painful. And, and that's a pain I think we should learn to embrace. Actually, could we, uh, uh, it's important, I think, to establish that. In this case, the person who complained was not hurt. No one complained to the guardie saying, I have been hurt and offended by these. Maybe, Owen, do you want to come in on that? The person who complained specifically said, I'm not outraged, but I want you to see if a crime has been committed here. So, um... Okay, I, I agree. I agree that um, when it comes to expression, sometimes the most important function that expression has is it forces you to justify to yourself what you think, yeah. and it forces you to justify to others what you think. So, if you hear the contrary argument put as articulately uh, as Stephen Fry managed to put it, um, it forces you. It makes you work very hard. But in this um, case, nobody was actually hurt. The religious people took on board the arguments and moved on. Well, so the, this whole thing has actually been. 
a completely fake row in many ways. Well, yes, I agree that it's, it seems to have been a storm in a teacup. And the reason why in the end um, Stephen Fry was never in any danger of a prosecution beginning is precisely that. You must show that outrage had been caused amongst the substantial numbers of adherents of a religion. And given that his comments were... Um, not specifically directed to any particular god or any particular religion. Um, There was plenty to play for. There are lots of theistic religions with lots of adherents in the country, but none of them seem to have been sufficiently outraged. There wasn't riots on the streets. Um, So um, uh, I don't think that it's one of the reasons why it's going to be very hard for this um, definition of blasphemy ever to be prosecuted successfully because you're effectively going to need outrage and riots before it has been committed. We're talking about blasphemy this morning and in studio with me Ono Dell, an Associate Professor of Law in Trinity College Dublin, Joe Humphreys, Assistant News Editor at the Irish Times and author of its philosophy column Unthinkable and Ginny Kinnerly is Editor of Search, the Church of Ireland Journal. Um, so Ginny Kinnerly, before the break there we were establishing that the definition of blasphemy, the bar is so high. You know, um, you have to cause outrage amongst a substantial number of the adherents of a religion and intend by the publication of the matter concerned to cause such outrage. Given that that, that bar is so high and it's almost impossible to prosecute anybody under it, well, maybe there should be some bar and maybe it is okay to leave it there that if you do say something that can actually fulfill the requirements here well maybe it should be a crime i i can't agree with that um I do think it's what um, you referred to earlier before we started as a teachable moment i think it is a challenge to christians and to the church church teaching authority or teaching people uh in general, to explore the issue of the goodness or the the goodness of God. Um, can he be all just and all powerful? Um, and a lot of work has been done in this, but it doesn't often get into the public domain. For instance, the whole question of creation. Stephen Fry would say, how dare you create a world in which children's eyes are eaten up by insects? Well, Christian theology no longer thinks of creation as having been done in six days. That's right. Way back. I was taught that in the 70s in primary school. Yeah. I mean, that's... But you Christian know. theology now thinks of creation as a continuing process. God is still creating. But at this point, um, having evolved human beings uh, with the amount of intelligence and, and understanding that they have, we are in a sense, co-creators. We are responsible for right. uh, improving, perfecting God's creation, which has still not perfect. And and you see, that is a Western Christian view. Mm-hmm. But in this globalised world, you know, there are other religions. So I guess Islam is the one that is most sensitive. Um, but, you know, denying the Holocaust in Germany is a crime. That, yeah. And um, Denying the Holocaust Yes, but, yeah. and theologically, the Holocaust was a very big challenge to a whole generation of theologians. How was it that God didn't stop that? But, I mean, if God stopped that, free will is removed. Right. God has given us free will. But are we viewing this fry blasphemy issue through the lens of liberal Western Christianity? And that perhaps it is fair to say, if, if these kinds of comments were made about Judaism or about Islam we would take a different view of it. You, you know, 
do other religions deserve some kind of protection, even if we as educated, evolved Christians don't think that we need it? Well, I think let's not suggest that Judaism and Islam are, are with, without Very um, intelligent yes. theologians <laughs> and liberal that. people. Yes. You know, yeah. I mean, there are Islamic extremists about. There are also some very sophisticated Islamic thinkers. Right, but anti-Semitic comments are not tolerated. No. No, um, no but I don't think that that means that there should be, you should be imprisoned for making one. Right. You know, you should be disciplined in some way, certainly challenged. Um, and I think this whole blasphemy thing is a challenge to us uh, to engage in dialogue uh, on these issues. Um, but Joe Humphreys, I mean, are we capable of civil dialogue on so many issues? I mean, I see public discourse mm. just degrading into abuse yeah. and maybe we should put the brakes on it. Well, yeah, I mean, just say one thing, by the way, yeah. of course, Stephen Fry did offend the Jewish God, he offended the Islamic God, he offended all mm. gods in a way. Yeah. What he did say, but no, you're absolutely right. Uh, I mean, and I think it goes back to this uh, eagerness to take offence and it's, it's I don't think it's a new thing necessarily I think we're, we're hardwired if you like to take offence as challenges to our, to our values Yeah but what but, people are arguing for is the right to give offence well, are they necessarily? I mean, well, there is a right to give offence in a way, or there's a right to free speech more than anything. I mean, I think, you know, this is where you're into distinguishing the legal response to that and, a, and, a, and an ethical one. You can you can criticise and ostracise someone in society for, let's say, being obnoxious. And we do that in our normal affairs. You don't need a legal response to that. But I think if you're looking at solutions, and I think, as you say, there is a lesson here for the so-called liberals of, uh, of this world that, you know, we need to learn from a very early stage that people who challenge our views, it's not necessarily a harm to our person or a threat to our individuality, it's a very positive thing. So, I mean, it's one of the reasons why I'd advocate philosophy in schools, because that's a foundation where you you learn how to challenge your fundamental beliefs in a way in which you're dealing with a rational argument uh, that's facilitated with some some a teacher ideally who's who's also philosophically minded and it's it's you you can learn how to disagree without feeling that you've lost out or you've lost respect. Uh, I mean, there's a there's a philosophical writer uh, Rebecca Goldstein who says philosophy that doesn't do damage to one's settled mind is not philosophy at all. Okay, and I think there's a there's a damage to our settled mind that we need to do regularly. And we need to facilitate in schools right up through society. I, I agree totally with that. But how does that fit with modern discourse where we have no platforming of, say, Germaine Greer because she doesn't think that, you know, men who become women mistake. really are women? Absolutely. I think it's a huge mistake to be intolerant of, of these views. And, you know, exactly platforming the, the, yeah. the chap from Twitter who was banned from the campuses across Berkeley, yeah. across America. Um, I mean, it, it, and this is where, the, if you like, the liberal... Uh, a, a liberal wing, if you like, or who, who feel that uh, criticism of um, particular norms within those, you know, whether it's gender-related uh, issues, political-related issues, uh, you know, that that anything that's deemed offensive then needs to be shut down. I think it's a very negative thing. And I think it does come, you know, from an early stage and an early training uh, is required to kind of almost combat that. Um, oh, no, Dell, what this has sparked off is some um, rather brilliant letter writing to the Irish Times, I have to say, and a couple of great columns that were in it. I really enjoyed them. One column was saying um, that really what this shows is that we're suffering from post-Catholic neurosis. <laughs> we're a nation of self-loathers panicking about being seen to be a priest-ridden nation. Um because it seemed to me the one of the most common arguments this week against the whole escapade was that it was an embarrassment. 
we were embarrassing ourselves in front of the world for even having this crime on the statute books. And that didn't seem to me to be a particularly strong argument, particularly when we go around praising Scandinavians for everything and Denmark still has a blasphemy law. You know, did we really embarrass ourselves? Not entirely sure that Denmark still has a blasphemy law, given that um, given that there haven't been prosecutions for the um, Muhammad cartoons. There have been uh, lots lots of uh, religious objections to Yellen no, they, they have them. it. They've tried to get rid of it a couple of times, but they can never get the um, the majority in Parliament that <laughs> they need. And I, some people think it is because of that fear of Islamic um, retribution. But we're going back to that embarrassment one anyway. Why should it be embarrassing? Well, I'm not. I'm, I don't know whether it's embarrassing. I mean, the yeah. description there was was a, a psychological analysis, yeah. and I'm not a psychologist or a psychiatrist are you a or an analyst. Are you a post-Catholic neurotic? You know, are you? Are, do you know? Like, do you know? I, th- you I think my neuroses are far, are far more than just post-Catholic. Uh, I'm a lawyer, after all. Okay, I think the the. Uh, seriously, though, there was a lot of international commentary, and some of it was a little, a little mocking. And when, whenever we are mocked, we're always going to be embarrassed by it. But, I, but you know, if we're embarrassed by this, this is a bit like saying uh, we're embarrassed because somebody else took offence. These are the kinds of things where we are forced to think. It's, it's exactly what what Joe was saying about how if somebody challenges us, then we have to think about what it is that we, that that we believe. And I think that we should really think seriously whether we want to keep a crime of blasphemy in the Constitution. It's bizarre to have a speech crime in the Constitution. That is almost unique. Um, it, it, it is one thing to put in limits on speech, to say that the state can contemplate limits on speech for reasons of prohibition of incitement to hatred, but it's quite another to go further and to have an imperative, blasphemy shall be an offence. And in fact, that raises questions about the correctness of um uh, Dermot O'Hearn's approach. He was self-congratulatory about how well we did what we were told, but we made it impossible. The making it impossible bit seems to me to be unconstitutional because mm. the Constitution says it has to be there. Yeah. Now, the Constitution says it has to be there. We make sure that it doesn't actually work. That doesn't sound to me to be res- responding to what the Constitution requires. It was an Irish solution. It was very much an Irish solution to an Irish problem. And a lot of those Irish solutions to Irish problems come unstuck. And we, we're seeing it... Co- coming unstuck in terms of the international embarrassment. But one of the other ways that it might come unstuck is that um, the, the Supreme Court might be forced to read that provision not quite as narrowly as Dermot O'Hearn would like us to do so because we are told in the Constitution that blasphemy shall be an offence. So that forces us to think, do we actually want blasphemy to right, be an offence? But, but on that issue of the international embarrassment, you see, that was all predicated on the understanding that a crime had actually been committed and somebody had complained on the basis that were off that you know that they were offended so of course richard dawkins you know whom i regard to be an obnoxious git joe might have something positive to say about him you know he wrote to the irish times saying as a gesture of solidarity with stephen cry i quote a sentence from my book the god delusion the god of the old testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction jealous and proud of it a petty unjust and an unforgiving control freak and he says he's going to be giving a lecture in the national concert hall on june 12th and shall therefore be available for arrest on a charge of blasphemy which was never going to happen so it's kind of like fake news really that none of this actually had any real basis at all. Well, we go back to the reason why the person who made the complaint made the complaint in the first place. And yeah. I think that this kind of international embarrassment must have been... There, there are two justifications. One is either this kind of international embarrassment is what was intended or this was somebody who had a religious view and wanted the religious views taken into account. Either way, it shows the unworkability of it. Um, I think that's just Dawkins jumping on the bandwagon. But on the other hand, uh, even if you disagree with somebody like that, you need to know what the other side 
outside his thinking. You need to read people like that to understand the counter-arguments. Ginny Kennerly. Yes, I'd like to come in on Richard Dawkins. Please um, come in on I mean, Richard Dawkins. Absolute, um, uh, as you say, just jump, jumping in to, to do his own showmanship of, of his, his atheism, which, sure, he's entitled to his atheism, but as a, as a Christian clergywoman, priest, canon, whatever you call it, I, I do find his work very aggressively. It's like it's atheistic mission, you know. It's evangelism. He's a, he's a stronger missionary for atheism than most Christians are for Christianity. And um, I wish people, instead of reading his uh, delusion book, would read Alistair McGrath's The Dawkins Delusion, which really puts him right McGraw isn't as aggressive as, as Dawkins and he isn't turning up in the National Concert Hall to give the opposite view. And I'd like to ask, why not? Why have we not invited McGraw as well if we really are a balanced society um, wanting to listen to all views? Why, why would we have him and not somebody to respond? So, Joe, um, Moore MacDool put uh, Richard in his place in your paper yesterday in the letters page. He said he was puzzled to see the Professor Dawkins writes from his Oxford College, New College, to expound at second hand what he considers to be the key elements in late Bronze Age doctrinal <laughs> theology in order to give 21st century man an understanding of the nature of God. After all, the university of which he is a senior member has as its motto, Dominus Illuminato Mayo, which I had to look up. It means the Lord is my um, do you not think Dawkins is just gratuitous? Well, I mean, he's obviously doing this to, for a bit of self-promotion exactly, and more indeed. bums on seats. Yeah. Um, I mean, there is a bit of an irony, though, if I uh, respectfully say that, I mean, a, a, a Christian uh, minister giving out about evangelization among uh, other another sector, among atheists. I mean, Dawkins is an evangelist to the extent that he makes arguments that he earnestly believes in and 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 thinks through. And I think a lot of the offence called by Dawkins, or this supposed offence, is going back to the thing, it's the struggle people have actually engaging with his arguments. So it's people write him off now as an offensive you know, character. He's not worth in, in engaging with. And it's, it's partly the reason I think why Fry, what's interesting is not so much many people didn't complain to the guards, but you didn't have bishops talking about the issue. You didn't have Archbishop Martin engaging in this in the public domain. I mean, this is, here he is on, on prime division. Surely the bishops should be engaging in a debate on this. Instead, they're sort of keeping that, uh, if, but do you the not Fry argument if he did? under a lid because people don't want the pain of having to discuss the sort of arguments he's making. And or, it's the same or, with Dawkins. Or maybe the bishop didn't get involved because they knew they'd get the head taken off them and be abused and be accused of all kinds of well, things. Well, no, I, I they're think... They're afraid to. Well, it, 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 but, yeah, I mean... They're, look, they're in a, they're big boys, and they're all boys. They're in, a, they're in a serious position. Uh, you know, they're well able to. They should be able to take on Stephen Fry, but I, th- I, th- I think they don't engage. And a lot. Of, I mean, obviously, this is a generalisation yeah. here, but I think there is a resistance among people of faith to engaging with those challenging arguments. I think Dawkins is a case of point. Like Dawkins, a lot of what Dawkins has to say is problematic from a scientific point of view. For instance, he has this idea that religion is spread by memes as a sort of a biological sort of virus which a lot of scientists would say is complete hokum and he should avoid these sort of things. But he, do, he, he does construct uh, very serious arguments. And I'd say from someone who would have been maybe to some degree um, tuned against him initially, I mean, uh, I would have described myself as a committed agnostic for a long time. And, I, and Dawkins convinced me on one point, I have to say, uh, in terms of challenging the, the stance of agnosticism and, and argues that to be an agnostic, you really have to seriously 
countenance the, the existence of a God, that it's not just a, a remote possibility, but a very real possibility, not just a one millionth of a percent, but, you know, kind of a substantial possibility. So, uh, you know, which, which I think a lot of people who sit on the fence, if you like, on religious debates, lapse Catholics, uh, some Catholics, uh, non-Catholics and so on, secularists who say, well, let's be nice, you know, let's have a nice chat. Uh, they're also kind of avoiding some of the really hard arguments that Dawkins is making. And some, and they also avoid the hard theology, I agree, as well, which Dawkins won't engage in. Yes, Dawkins doesn't like engage Dawkins, in hard Ginny, Dawkins does not um, relate to the, to the real theology of the Christian church. I mean, I agree with a lot of what Dawkins says in that he is attacking the Bible Belt-style Christianity of America, um, and which does can be seen here as well. Um, but that's that's not what I see as Christianity. That is almost a uh, an it's a overs- cult in itself. It's an oversimplification of Christianity. Mm. If Dawkins would engage with real Christianity, I would begin to respect him. But I'm afraid that he doesn't. He doesn't bother to read good theology. I think what I don't like about him is um, I go to mass, and 95 percent of the people there are elderly people who don't open their mouths about religion in public and it's a consolation for them. Mm -hmm. And I don't see the benefit in mocking them and taking away whatever bit of comfort they're getting from this as they approach the end of their lives. I think he's unnecessarily mocking of of people. His arguments are logically sound. But does he really need to, well, to laugh see, at the, them? The, the logic yeah. is sound coming from his premises, but yeah. I don't accept his premises. And what I really object to is not only uh, discomforting the elderly folk, but alienating the young people from the church because they are led to believe that the church is something it's not. By yeah. Dawkins. Sorry. We're talking about blasphemy this morning, but of course we really started talking about Richard Dawkins in studio. Owen O'Dell, Joe Humphreys and Ginny Kinnerly. Um, Owen O'Dell, I know a lot of religious people feel that, um, especially Christians feel, that they're the last community left that you can insult at will. OK, two things. First, just before we uh, went to the break, you said you wanted to find out what I think of Richard Dawkins. Yes. Uh, I think two things. Yeah. Um, He's neither good science nor good polemic. Uh, in, terms, in terms of the science and religion, Daniel Dennett writes an awful lot better about the same area. And in terms of polemic against God, somebody like um, uh, Christopher Hitchens wrote, wrote considerably better. Now, um, uh, so, so my problem with Dawkins is that he's just not very good at what he's doing. He's a, he's, he may be a, self-publicist, uh, a good self-publicist, but he's not a particularly, he's not a particularly good polemicist or scientist. Um, as for the uh, uh, Christians are the, are the last minority that it's okay to, to, to denigrate, I, I am with Joe. I think we should be uh, free to say whatever we want about whomsoever we want. I don't think that it matters whether it's Christians or whether but it's why? transgender or whether it's uh, um, students, students who are complaining about uh, the um, Israeli ambassador coming to a college. I think we should be entitled to say what we think and say what we believe. But respectfully. Not necessarily respectfully. That's the whole point. Well, once, once, you st- I hope, once, yeah. once you start to put a limit, <laughs> once you say speech, I believe in free speech, but it has to be X, then you're not actually believing in what free speech is there for. Once you add the word but to the sentence, I believe in free speech, you no longer believe in free speech. You believe in something else where words have to have to be what you approve of. And that's exactly what the problem with this last me debate is. It is asserting that the words that can be said are the words that I approve of. And I completely disagree with that.
I th- you can uh, I Joe, th- I yeah. think there's a, 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 an understandable concern. There's a double standard here that um, you know you can say anything you like about religion, yeah. but you can't say things about certain topics yeah. that are you know in the broad political liberal milieu. You know, yeah. and you'll get jumped on on social media and so on. And I think that is a valid one to raise. But I think the response to that is not to say let's clamp down on all speech, let's clamp down on people criticising the church. You know, we want to persecute, if you like, to put to no, extreme. Not, no, that's a straw man. No, it's but, not saying all speech. It's yeah. just saying don't cross a line where you're giving deliberately offence to a large number of people. Well, again, where, does, where do you stop then with that? And I think it's the wrong way of coming about it. I think, I think if you say... OK, I'm taking offence at this. And I, I think of I, one chap I interviewed for the, the column in, in the Irish Times, the unthinkable column, is uh, Brand Hansen, who's a, a theologian, not a theologian so much, he's a Christian um, activist and a broadcaster in, in the States. And he deals in, a, in, a, in an environment where there's a lot of reactionary Christian views. And he, he brought out a book called Unoffendable. And his thinking is the Christian approach is to be completely unoffendable. Same way as Jesus turned the other cheek. You uh, Offence should be... A sort of an opportunity to to engage with someone, you know, to to actually sort of show mercy to other people as well, and it it, it enhances you as a Christian, you know, to actually be unoffended, and it's liberating. And it, this is an argument that doesn't just work on Christians. I mean, it works on anyone. It's a very convincing case he makes on this, and. I think that is what we should be promoting rather than saying, look, you know, you guys are taking offence, so it's our turn to take offence or we should be allowed to take offence because you're taking offence. Right, but Ginny, there was another excellent letter to the Irish Times which says, the Lord God has no need of the protection of our law nor constitution. However, we do well to speak respectfully on all matters and with a loving spirit. To do otherwise says more about the speaker than the one spoken of. And I'm wondering, is this what we should be taking from this? Uh, With all respect to Owen's free speech argument, and I'll get back to him on that, that actually... I like that. I I didn't see that letter. Yeah. Uh, But that is rather the lines I was thinking on. Um, That being gratuitously offensive just... it, It escalates into conflict. Who does it benefit? What, who does it benefit? Should we not be looking rather to understand each other better and somehow find our way towards a truth we can all accept? Um, and I think that's something that the media should be helping in. Whereas in fact, too too often the media just want to provoke argument. I agree. Uh, and, and so on. Now, I just have I, something came to me last night when I was thinking about this, and I'm sorry to be quoting the Bible at you, but this Don't is, apologize. <laughs> this is what Jesus says about blasphemy in Mark chapter 3. He says, Truly I tell you, people will be forgiven for their sins and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit can never be forgiven, can never have forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin, for they have said he has that is, Jesus has an unclean spirit. Now, that's interesting. Um, and there's been a lot of worry about this unforgivable sin in Christian history. But I think what Jesus is saying, he has been accused by the scribes and Pharisees or whoever of having an unclean spirit, being demon-possessed, because he has been casting out demons. And he says, well, you know, if if it takes the, uh, the king of demons to cast out demons... Satan is divided against himself, so that can't be true. But the sin against the Holy Spirit, I think, is something we need to think about. It's refusing to see the Holy Spirit in other people. They refuse to see the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, in Jesus and the activity of the Holy Spirit in Jesus. And I think in a similar way, um, 
we should be able to find something of God in one another and to look for that. I would find something of God in Stephen Fry, I'm sorry, because of his compassion for for people who are suffering needlessly and apparently mm. without reason. So I think we have to respect that compassion in Stephen Fry rather than hauling him into court and saying you're a blasphemer. So Owen, I might give you the last word then on this. So you were arguing for no limits on free speech. And I was it, arguing for no legal limits on free speech. Okay. I completely, I completely agree with what Ginny was saying about respect for others and not causing gratuitous offence and be, being aware of the sin and all of that because these are individual matters for individuals. But what I disagree with is that these should be legal standards, that the idea of offence should be a legal standard, that the fact that I have taken offence is a sufficient reason to restrict your speech legally. I don't... Uh, Offence is, is, is a weasel phrase. It is mm. easy to take offence. It is impossible to prove. And it is an impossible standard um, on which to make legal judgments. And to the extent that we should say that offence, or if we add gratuitous offence or unique offence, putting an adjective before something that's undefinable doesn't make doesn't it, help de- it yeah. doesn't help, doesn't make it definable. Um, because it's indefinable, it shouldn't be a standard for restricting speech. I think that's probably a conclusion we could nearly all agree with. Um, so I might just leave it there. Joe Humphreys, Ono Dad, Ginny Kennerly, many thanks for joining me today. And just to let you know that our last podcast is up on what the future might be for France and the European Union and also asking the question, is Emmanuel Macron the real thing and what is populism? The podcast contains the best description I've heard of that so far. You can get it by searching for Talking Point in your podcast player and at Newstalk.com. And you can also subscribe, of course, and it'll be there for you whenever you want it. So that's it for this morning. Many thanks to my guests, Aidan McKelvey Research, Stephen Jordan Produced, and thank you for listening.